Welcome to the ESG Matters Podcast. My name is Amat Gomis and I'm your host. Today we have Kevin Hagen, Vice President of Environment, Social and Governance Strategy at Iron Mountain. Iron Mountain is the global leader in innovative storage and information management services. Iron Mountain has joined the Climate Group's EV100 initiative and reached key milestones in electrifying its global vehicle fleet to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2040. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Hey, thanks, Amon. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. The first question I really have for you is, can we discuss why is it important for Iron Mountain to join Climate Group's EV100 initiative? Yeah, it's a it's super question. So I feel like the thing you got to say first in this context is we really believe that sustainability is a team sport. A lot of companies are starting to work real hard on figuring out how to think through environmental and social impacts in their business and how doing things differently can actually get us better business, better environmental and better social community results which is great. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a real turning point for business to start thinking differently and get different results. It's awesome. And as we start down that path, I think folks, uh, once you do a little bit of work within the organization, you pr- pretty quickly realize that you can't do it all by yourself. So collaboration and connection with peer companies, the NGO community, even government agencies has been, even academia, has been really important for us to figure out how to 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 do more. Uh, there's the old adage: if you want to go fast, go alone, and if you want to go far, go together. I think that when it comes to sustainable business implementation, it's a little bit of a twist on that. We go further and faster together. And I think it's really important to make sure folks who listen understand how critical it is to be part of a team and have this team effort because the solutions are really going to come from an opportunity that we all leverage to work together to to meet these goals and meet these large worldwide issues that we're struggling to either mitigate or to lessen its impact on the environment. And thinking about the environment, understanding that Iron Mountain has a goal to achieve a net zero carbon emission by 2040, can you describe the process you took to get buy-in from Iron Mountain to commit to such a goal? I know a lot of people out there are in similar situations working within an organization and pushing them for large, audacious goals like this. It's a huge goal. And if you if you don't think it's a huge goal, you haven't thought about it enough. <laughs> Sorry. It's a, it's a really big agenda item, especially if you're thinking, just thinking scope one, sort of the direct emissions from the business, or scope two, the the energy and electricity that you import, and then on to you know what folks call scope three, or that those indirect emissions from supply chain impacts or how your customer uses your stuff. It's just daunting. Uh, so I think part of it has been that we've been on this path a while, and we've had some success helping ourselves see that um, with better data, with uh, better thoughtfulness, more collaboration, um, more innovation. We've actually had some success inside our business to reduce our footprint while growing the business. And that I opened eyes. I think that was our, our permission to proceed. So as we've looked at our own results, we realized that, yeah, we, this wasn't a total leap of faith. This was a build on what we know for into the, into some unknown, but build on what we know and proof points. So I think that was a, a a key factor. 
so having good data, having our senior leadership team have a reasonable understanding of what you know those those factors were, and and then having a roadmap. If not everything all worked out, at least we kind of had a roadmap for our business. We understood where our footprint is, where the big, you know, I think of it as a pie chart, where the big slices of the pie are, and having that kind of idea or roadmap that can get us pretty far. And that was, I think those were the keys to being able to lay that out in front of the leadership team and say that putting our weight down on a big commitment was uh, was going to be a key component in actually getting that done. And I think there's something in there that a lot of people make loss over, which I think is very important to highlight, which is you have already built on the goodwill and the data that you already had available to show that this is not necessarily a goal that's coming out of left field, but it's rooted in understanding the issue, understanding the concepts, and then working towards this is what we need in order to meet these larger goals that society has and that we are part of society that's important. And I think it's really valuable for for people on the inside working in a corporate sustainability role to understand you may already have some of these tools available to you and it's really leveraging those tools to draw that story and make that narrative make sense for decision makers who may not be as close to that information or may not understand exactly what you're trying to do. So I think that is a really strong and salient point to point out for folks listening. You've obviously been there. <laughs> I, I have been there. I have, I have some battle scars to prove in myself. So it is, uh, it's an interesting time to, to be alive in many respects because now we're seeing that there's so many more places, both companies and communities that have a buy-in into sustainability, have a buy-in into large goals like this. But I am curious that, you know, when you think about Iron Mountain, Iron Mountain services more than 220,000 customers in 58 countries. Will efforts to decrease carbon emissions be in select locations? How will that sort of pan out? Yeah, so that, you know, pull open the pull open the door a little bit. Let's look inside. Yeah, we operate, you know, all over the world and our footprint is different in different places, but relatively consistent. Although, you know, a big chunk of our footprint comes from our data center business. So as you know, our, our business is really about information management and, and, and protecting data and information and assets. So in the old days, that was everybody's paper documents. And so Iron Mountain was born as a paper documents uh, management company and storing lots of boxes of documents all over the world, like 90 million square feet of it. So that was where we began. But obviously, data is going digital. And so Iron Mountain has too. So we've, you know, kind of perceive ourselves as a, as a data company, not as a, as a paper company. And so we've followed that path. So we became a digital assets management company to help our customers manage digital assets. They used to live on tape, for example. And now more recently, it's living live uh, in data centers. So we've become one of the top data center, colo data center providers in the world. Uh, at the same time, data centers are one of the most energy intense industries out there. So we realized that we had a big problem. In fact, I tell the joke of uh, the early days when we were trying to do energy efficiency projects and we were going to set a goal for cutting energy use in half. 
And meanwhile, someplace else in the business, someone was building a data center strategy. And so when we realized, when we put those pieces together, we realized we weren't going to be able to uh, efficiency our way out of this problem. In fact, since 2016, as a corporation, we have tripled our energy consumption. So, whoa, that's, uh, you know, carbon neutral on one hand, triple your energy consumption on the other. How do you resolve that challenge? And the answer has been largely up till now has been renewable energy solutions. And, you know, you asked about getting executive buy-in. I think it's a great example. We could have bought a little green power at a premium and sort of, you know, called it good. Instead, recognizing where things were going, we needed to get good at this fast. So we spent probably 18 months, maybe two years, really working through uh, the analysis of how to buy green energy, how to invest the right places, uh, how to do much more complicated uh, contractual arrangements, bringing treasury and finance and operations into into the tent. Ultimately, we figured out how to do contracts that secured long-term cost advantages and actually reduced first cost in many cases. As soon as we took the first contract to our CFO, he looked at us and said, wow, this makes money. Can we do more of this? Yes, we can. So, the joke I now tell is, as soon as we figure out how to make money at it, nobody stops us. It's funny how that happens, right? And funny how that happens, right? So the, I think the key was once we figured that out, now it wasn't let's get 10% renewable energy. It's why would you stop at less than 100? Right? Of course, if, if it's, if it's going to be a better deal, make it so. So I think that was part of our success of figuring out how to help the business realize that meeting net zero goals or you know reducing carbon footprint wasn't about a, you know, do the right thing, although it often is, but it was really about combining the business effort and the environmental sustainability effort and social justice effort to actually get better outcomes. And once folks sort of realized that putting our weight down on big, audacious aspirations and goals helped the organization align, not, 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 not pitch it against each other, trying to figure out the balance but realign towards getting both accomplished, we really unlocked a lot of opportunity for the business to go forward. And that's such a critical component of successful programs across the board is when you understand how to not just conceptualize the, con- the ideas that you have in a way that senior leadership, oftentimes from a finance background, can understand it, but also when you show that you're no longer doing this necessarily just out of the good of your heart, but also because it makes good sense from a business standpoint, you get a lot more buy-in, you get a lot more opportunities to sort of prove your mettle in in the eyes of folks who may have been reticent before. So I think that's a great, a great, great uh, opportunity for people who are sitting in companies to say, how can I sort of follow the same thing that Kevin just said, which is, understand what the situation is and look for opportunities to improve that also help the business. So you are basically killing two birds with one stone and you start to buy, get a lot more corporate buy-in from leadership because they can understand and they see the value of this in ways they may not have been, um, been able to before. When doing all of this work, when you think about 
you know, the big net zero carbon emissions goal by 2040, thinking about joining the climate group's EV100 initiative. What has been the biggest surprise or unforeseen obstacle when the company cars and fleets were transitioned to electric vehicles? Yeah, electric vehicles have been a really interesting trajectory for the organization. So once we started working on renewable energy and got to, you know, we're up to about 80% of our global electricity portfolio from renewable energy contracts, including 100% of our data center business. So now we're, you know, and we're climbing, we have goals to get higher. So that sort of opened the ideas of, well, let's electrify everything. <laughs> if, we, if we can do electric that way, that sounds great. So that and that's certainly the next biggest chunk of the pie for us is fleet um, fleet operations. We have some five thousand vehicles uh, worldwide, which isn't an, an enormous fleet, but it is our next biggest chunk. And figuring out how to shift um, our fleet to zero emissions, uh, you know, that's that's a challenge. I think the surprise. So I, I had two parts of the surprise that I think are a good answer here. One is looking across the world at how fast electric vehicles are disrupting the transportation infrastructure and industry was part of the surprise. I think our organization and probably humans don't appreciate the rate of change as much, you know, unless you're close to the details. So we sat down with leadership and said we need to, uh, as a result, by the way, of a, of a project we executed with the Environmental Defense Fund their Climate Corps Fellowship. We had Climate Corps Fellows who spent the, a summer doing some analysis for us on our fleet. And we recognized fleet was really important to us. And while a North American perspective was, eh, we're, we're not ready yet, time's not right, products aren't there, things, you know, we're, it, we got to wait. We sat down with leadership and said, well, you know, actually, We've got a, nearly two dozen cities in Europe that have banned diesel vehicles with implementation over the next five to eight years, which means that if we don't figure out EVs real soon, we can't serve our customers in those cities. That made us go, wow, we need to learn this really fast. And so that helped you know, put some motivation in it, having that worldwide perspective. And then I think the second thing that we learned was EVs are not a drop-in replacement for diesel vehicles. And the emphasis on that has been around what diesel can do that EV can't. So range anxiety or, you know, finding a gas station. I think what really changed our thinking about the whole thing is when we put enough people in the room to start really thinking about, okay, that's true. And what are the possible ways in which EVs can do things that diesel can't? So quiet, uh, easy to drive, better torque ratios, can do things and you know not have idling problems and therefore not get fined for idling. A whole bunch of things that EVs can do if you think about it that way. And I think that was the uh, door opening to us, really putting a team together to think about how to implement an, a vehicle electrification program that captured those benefits uh, more than lamented the losses of diesel. That's really interesting. I think a lot of times we do think about EV as being a one-to-one replacement for 
vehicles and how you really have to understand that that's not the case. And also, it's very important to realize that a lot of the movements that companies are doing, we also have to think about local, state, and federal, or even uh, international governments who are also moving and have their own goals. So we see a lot of climate action plans happening in the U.S. from a city level or from a county level. And part of that is the electrification of their fleet. And then eventually they will also look for businesses to partner with them to have EV or sustainable metrics or building measurements and things of that nature to be part of that conversation. So by doing this now, in many respects, you're saving yourself a future headache by doing this preemptively so that you can have a richer, fuller dialogue with governments, especially since you're in over 58 countries, to say, this is what we've done, this is the value that we've brought, and this is the the learnings and the best practices that we can share with you. That's a really great point. You know, just to throw on that, one of the things that was part of that cross-divisional look, you know, pulling pulling more people in, pull finance in, uh, operations, real estate, um, pulling, you know, lots of different perspectives into the room who would have an impact led us to the opportunity to build a total cost of ownership model that was eye-opening. And once we realized that we needed to work hard soon and we had motivation to go soon, building a total cost of ownership, like a five-year cost of ownership model, was super because it helped us understand that there were a lot of, when we were more clever about what's in there, there were a lot of places where EVs pencil now. And so we really you know, could get launch going in places where it makes sense already financially as well as uh, you know, agenda-wise. And that really helped us accelerate the process fast because once people realized that we could, you know, back to, we can make money at it, we can, nobody stops us. Um, once we realized it actually already was the cheaper option, uh, it really accelerated the process. And that also goes back to what you said before, when this is really a team sport and making sure you have the right players on your team that you respect what they can bring And you brought together the right people in the organization to come up with that model that really helped you and helped the organization understand why you should do this now as opposed to wait or if it doesn't make sense when you think about the total cost of ownership. And I think for people listening, that is a model of making sure you bring in the right groups within your organization, the right people to make sure that you have that holistic view on a specific action or a set of actions that you're planning to take because there may be some really interesting learnings and ideas that you can use to bolster your point or create some innovative solutions to obstacles that you may not have even realized were obstacles or even knew that those solutions were available to you. So I think it's really important that people understand how valuable it is to make sure you have the whole team with you and don't do this in a silo feels like a lot more work. And in some ways, it is a lot more work to bring more people in. But once you've, you know, get that team going, it's amazing how much they can accomplish. And, you know, bring in skeptics. I, I would say that probably one of the finance, I'm not telling anybody, telling stories out of school here, but probably one of the finance folks was one of the people that was 
more show me uh, than others uh, on the EV thing. And once we figured out the total cost of ownership model and started looking at all the ways in which EVs actually reduce expenses, um, he ended up being one of the first people to get an EV company car. Yeah, that that's usually what happens is that oftentimes people who are detractors or who haven't necessarily bought in is because uh, people in the field haven't addressed their concerns or spoke the language in which they understand. And when you do that, then they're like, I get it, I'm bought in, and they become some of the some of the best proselytizers because they can say, hey, I, I hated this before, or I didn't believe in this at all. But because they showed me X, Y, Z, now I get it. And now I can tell other people who shared my previous belief why they should get on board. And it's really encouraging to see that because you feel like the hard work is paid off. But it's also interesting from a human um, dynamic to just understand that it's not that people dislike it, it's that oftentimes people don't understand it. And making sure people understand and push people to, to do that is really important. And when we think about sort of pushing people and, and understanding things, what has been the response to Iron Mountain's actions to get to a net zero carbon emissions, both internally and externally? I'm curious how that, how that process has been and what's been the reaction. All over the map from holy cow, this makes me so proud of the company, um, to uh, we don't really believe it, and it's just a story. There's nothing, there's no there there. I think that that's natural, and that's, if you're expecting the ticker tape parade, this isn't the, this isn't the profession for you. <laughs> I think uh, we take slings and arrows from all directions, and if, if we're getting equally uh, sort of beat up from different directions, it probably means we're, we're doing the right change work. For example, you know, it's easy to figure out or it's easy to see the folks who, you know, objected to electric vehicles, for example, on the premise that they were more expensive or less performing or whatever, and then became, you know, advocates because they drove one and started to see the benefits, right? So that was, and started to see the math that it, that works. So that's one perspective. The other perspective is the other extreme, frankly, there are folks who believe that if we're make money, if we're making money at it, we can't possibly really mean it. It, it, it it's got to hurt; otherwise, it's not real. You know? And you got to sacrifice to be able to be sustainable. And I think that perspective is present frequently, and also needs to be uh, addressed with change. You know, we, we, we all, you know, we're all having a change in our attitude. I think they're both. Um, artifacts of the either-or mentality, right? The conventional wisdom says it's either you do the right thing or you do the business thing. It, it, pos- it can't possibly be both, right? And, um, you know, that that manifests in all kinds of ways. The green product is always, you know, more expensive and doesn't work as well. Or, you know, if you, uh, if you want to make a difference with your career, certainly you don't join a corporation, you want to, you want to, you, you absolutely not. You must, you must become, must take a vow of, of uh, poverty, right? You must do right. So, ashes and sack, sackcloth and ashes, right? So, I think that's the, you know, that either or mentality. So, to shift the gears entirely and start imagining that business can be the tool that can drive huge change. You know, I'm I'm paraphrasing a bit, but even Paul Hawkins in in uh, in his uh, seminal work, The Ecology of Commerce, 
I'm paraphrasing, but basically he's saying business is the only human institution with the scale, the speed, and the resources to make a big enough difference fast enough to matter. And I couldn't agree more. You know, when we get the uh, engine of enterprise turned around and solving problems instead of causing them, it is an amazing, it is just amazing how fast and how far uh, we can make things happen. And that's a reason to show up every morning, in my opinion. That's a reason to make your day job into a difference making job, no matter where you are in the organization. And I think that's such a great place to end it because it's both true and uplifting. Um, So Kevin, I just want to thank you for being a guest on the ESG Matters podcast. And one last question, if people want to learn more about what Iron Mountain is doing, both in EV and just sustainability overall, what's the best resources for them to look at and gain more information? You're a pro, man. Thank you for that. Thank you for all the great work you're doing. And thanks for that little moment of, uh, of, of linkage uh, and, and follow up. Hey, Iron Mountain's got a, a website at uh, ironmountain.com, uh, corporate responsibility. And there's a bunch of stuff about what we're doing. You know, we'd really appreciate feedback. Uh, we know we're not getting it all done and we know we're not doing it all right. So, you know, I really, we do believe in that sustainability is a team sport thing. Uh, feedback from the audience, from folks who are in various walks of life and see things from different perspectives, super appreciated. So catch our report. Our next uh, annual report is being published in just a couple weeks' time. And we're really looking forward uh, sort of towards the end of April. Uh, and uh, that looks like uh, it's going to be a, a super opportunity to dig in and see some of the details here. And uh, happy to have uh, folks comment and respond. And, and thanks again for this opportunity to connect. Uh, your, your work in sharing this kind of stuff is, is super helpful to the, to the community. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for being a guest on the ESG Matters podcast. Take care. Thank you for listening to the ESG Matters podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe on your choice of podcast platforms. This podcast is brought to you by Amat Gumis and theme music by Dexter Thomas. 